I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you insights, conversations, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. Today we're talking about technology and the fragmentation of attention with Maggie Jackson. After an early career as a foreign correspondent, Maggie returned to the US and began writing about workplace and work-life issues. She began noticing the impact of early technologies such as laptops and cell phones on people. At that time, the tone of the national conversation was quite utopian and, Maggie felt, naive. I call it the gee whiz factor, she told me. Many people truly thought that technologies were going to solve our problems, connect us, teach us, transport us, magically and painlessly. Voicing any concerns or pointing out downsides easily had one labelled as a Luddite. In 2008, many years before the current debates around technology and attention, Maggie wrote the book Distracted, which dived into the science of attention and the steep costs of its fragmentation. She's currently working on a book about uncertainty as the gateway to good thinking in an age of snap judgment. We chatted recently by Skype and I started out by asking her what it was that she spotted in 2008 that made her concerned enough to sit down and write distracted. I was interested in looking back in history to see how the you know, so-called previous revolution in technology had been adapted to, so to speak. So I really thought I could look back into the 17th, 18th, 19th century and see how humanity had adapted to technology. Well, that was a fallacy in multiple ways, but it did put me ultimately at a good place um, to look at what's going on, what would be going on today. So I really went into this deep dive of of, um, research into the history of the bicycle and the telegraph and the electric light and the train and the um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it was fascinating. And I came up with um, two kind of epiphanies. One was it's all a continuum. The changing um, experience of time and space has been uh, accumulating. You know, it started long ago. All of what we're experiencing didn't come in with the laptop and the cell phone, the desktop, et cetera, as we often treated it. It's kind of akin to treating you know, the, the women and the workplace issue as something that appeared on the horizon in the 1970s, which is um, also misleading. So we need that long historic look, I felt. Um, but as I began to understand this and look and look and look at what some of the trends and the impact on people's lives and sense of time and relationships and how they, uh, what they feared and what they hoped for, I then began to realize, literally, it was sort of a strange moment in the New York Public Library in their vast reading room with the beautiful painted ceiling, the light bulb kind of went off, and maybe one of the only times in my life, and, and I thought, this is about attention. This is not about the technology. And so that set my course for um, a look at not only the science of attention, which is very new and really only recently in the last 20 years have scientists been able to think that they can understand something about attention, which is kind of amazing in and of itself. And then it also set me on course to understand, to see what was going on with technology um, through the prism of distraction or um, fragmentation of attention. And I'll just add also that at that time, there was a lot of interest in my book 
Um, but through, we were talking at that time about ADHD. You know, who has ADHD? Could it be a cultural phenomenon? It was a very narrow conversation. People, there was a lot of denial that this was a problem. Um, there was a play on Broadway in New York uh, called Distracted about a, a woman trying to find resolution or, or a medical solution for her child who had ADHD. And at the time, the playwright was actually quoted as saying, I'm not sure if this is, we're just living in a different world or there's some dysfunction here. So we really didn't know. And it was the time and the era when having it all and being on the fast track was what we wanted. So I see this as the uh, culmination in some ways of the efficiency driven model of the industrial age at, you know, with the addition of, you know, extreme machinery to, um, uh, you know, exacerbate uh, what we were grappling with. And now, of course, this is all center stage. It's not peripheral. It's not someone else's problem. It's not something for the people who can't really keep up, which I think was the subtext to the initial discussions about distraction. Oh, you're, you're really just, you know, distracted. Um, you're one of the, the people who are falling by the wayside as the rest of us march toward this prog, you know, this, this ideal of progress, um, machine-like efficiency. Because one of the things that's so interesting about that that look backwards that you take is, you know, all of that stuff about how a lot of the kind of things that people say now about smartphones, people said about books when books first came out. And, oh, these young people, all they do is read books. <laughs> now people would be like, oh, my God, please read a book. You know, but I, I wonder what what is when people say, oh, it's just the same and smartphones and, and, and Facebook, it's just it's just the same thing. What is qualitatively different about the kind of impacts we're seeing in terms of attention now? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Um, I'm asked that all the time. Um, how do you know what's different, what's better, what's worse? Why, you know, is this just hand-wringing um, as, as, as we have always done with change? Um, but I think that, you know, first, I have two answers. One is that the um, totality of what we're dealing with is so much greater. The number of hours, the you know, media, I think teens are up to nearly eight hours of media exposure a day. Um, the, the, the totality of how much this has become the ether, this has become the, it, you know, our lives is really something that's, so in other words, you can have different changes in society but how, to what degree are they shaping people's lives, people's minds? So I think that's really important. And we're beginning to get, you know, more of the research, not only about, it used to be that they, they do, a, you know, would do a, a scientific study about TV and what was on the, in the box, whether, whether was it, was it violent, et cetera. Now there, there's a much better recognition that these, while it's difficult to study, um, that these technologies meld and overlap and are taking up different corners of our lives and people are multitasking the technology. Um, so that's really an important factor as well. But I'd also say that, um, sure, we should be absolutely aware of 
unnecessary hand-wringing and, and the human um, tendency to want the familiar and to look nostalgically back at the past. But the, but the bottom line for me is we have to solve the problems of our day. And when there are just too many signals and signs um, from so many uh, areas of expertise and research that there are problems with human well-being, with human relationships, uh, with human ability to have sustained focus or to elaborate the greatest drop in the creati creativity studies that you mentioned a minute ago, the long-term creativity studies that have been done at the William and Mary University, the greatest drop is um, in elaboration. You know, from kindergarten into adulthood, people's abilities to put flesh on an idea, to build out the wisp of an idea that we all have in, crea in creating, um, that has plummeted 40%. And many of these um, drops in creativity have fallen since um, the, you know, the technology became a greater force in our lives. So that's the, so there are warning bells. And I think just as in climate change, we can wait until all the, 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 the T's are crossed or the I's are dotted and what have you and do nothing or you can make make an assessment using that judgment that's under siege and act. Because the uh, I wonder the you know when I was uh, I didn't have email until maybe thirteen years ago, uh, Twitter until maybe seven years ago, Facebook just a few years ago. You know, this is a, this is an experiment that has happened in a very short period of time. If yes. we if we were to say you know this this has been a twenty year experiment on a massive massive scale, what would you how would you summarize the interim findings of that experiment? Mm. Well, that's a very big question. <laughs> um, I think that. On in terms, I'm thinking currently about um, both distraction and how that affects people, the fragmentation of attention, and also about the, um, you know, the 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 role of uncertainty in thinking. Um, so I'd like there there's sort of two points, two points of assessment. I'd say when it comes to distraction, if we define it as this fragmentation. I think some of the most, the vulnerability that we're facing has to do with um, less flexibility in mind. I see um, a lot more research that's in depth and shows what happens to what, when people are avid multitaskers, when they multitask a lot, which is almost all of us, and especially online, um, they, you know, they actually are shown to have less ability to discern what's trivial and what's relevant in their environments. Um, that's chilling right there. They, when people are avid multitaskers and when they are multitasking and absorbing new information, the knowledge that they're storing or encoding or remembering is less flexible. In other words, it's less, uh, they are less able to translate, to make connections to new kinds of knowledge. You can solve the same old kind of math problem, but you can't maybe transfer it to a different kind of math problem. Um, that also is extremely important. 
um, not just for creativity, but for the um, you know accumulation of wisdom. So I've had professors tell me that uh, because kids are multitasking their way through their homework in college, um, they'll get to you know the, the second level psychology or history class, and it's as if they hadn't even taken the introduction. They have such shallow information. Um, you know, even the presence, and I'm talking about multitasking as we work, uh, you know, at, uh, online often, um, but also even just the presence, new, new, inform- new research shows that the presence of a cell phone, when even if it's silent and turned off and not answered, not just siphons, uh, unconsciously siphons our attention away so we're less focused, but also um, undermines people's ability to think in fluid ways. It, it, it siphons off uh, fluid intelligence, which is described as the um, ability to solve unfamiliar, to interpret and, and solve unfamiliar problems. So less flexibility in knowledge, less fluidity in intelligence, um, that you know leads us in a... Uh, you know, an alarming direction. Um, and, you know, I, it, it's a sort of splintering that leads to the stunting of information. And it, again, if you go back to the picture of, of thinking as being something that happens, um, you know, kind of all over the place and in a wandering way, and, and we have this monkey mind, etc. But what is reflective thinking? What is higher order thinking? What is the so-called slow mind um, the system of thinking that elevates above uh, us above gut or intuitive or instant thinking, um, that is um, something that needs elaboration, that needs building, that is constructed, that, 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 that builds out um, consciously. And so the splintering is, I think, um, you know, the, assess- the second assessment I would make about this social experiment in technology is that um, the instantaneity of the information that we're able to get is being shown to, you know, undermine our willingness to think uh, in these complex ways that 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 uh, are so important for imagination. And so, studies, couple, uh, both out of Harvard and um, someone who's now at Carnegie Mellon, uh, um, their new studies. Um, it's, a, it's a first burst of research into what happens when you're searching online. Well, just a tiny little bit of searching leads to this a kind of hubris. Um, it, it, it enabled, because the information is so instant, we begin to think that um, answers are just there for the plucking. So people are shown to, to overestimate their ability to answer questions, similar type of questions without the computer. And um, that kind of hubris, you know, the, one of those researchers said, um, we never have to face our ignorance online. Matthew Fisher of Carnegie Mellon, we never have to face our ignorance. You don't know the line. You can't learn if you don't know what you don't know. So the idea that um, not just the, the splintering is affecting, you know, how the flexibility of information but also that the very nature, the template-driven instantaneity of this world we're um, wedded to is, I think, turning, making what it means to know is changing into something brief, perfunctory, neat, packaged, easily accessible. 
So that's a steady diet. Uh, and also when people do search online, they've been shown in studies to be four times less willing to um, wrestle with complex problems. Their so-called need for cognition drops. Um, and I think that those are, you know, two of the kind of pulse points or temperature reads, I'd say, um, from this, um, you know, this level, this degree of machine-made, um, you know, ma machine-made, um, uh, what would I call it, um, environments, environments for thinking. Um, and, you know, just to add a little bit about imagination and that mind that what I, you know, see as the uncertain mind, the reflective mind, um, you know, it really begins by not knowing. It all begins with um, if, if you are in the routine, in the familiar, able to depend on automaticity, gut thinking serves you really well. Um, but the first answer, in other words, the first assumption is just dandy most of the most of our days. But when we meet with something murky, complex, novel, lay, layered, then we really have to call consciously upon this mind that can so-called, you know, decouple from the routine, from the familiar, even from our present surroundings and launch into the hypothetical and um, and gather more information and test the possibilities within our head, create the framework. All of this is an imagination, a process of imagination. Mm -hmm. And that uncertainty is really the threshold, I think, that so often gets overlooked. That's why I'm writing a book now that really was launched as a book about thinking and is turned into a book um, about uncertainty as this great prom gateway of promise and curiosity and wonder that we think of as uh, uncomfortable and dismissible and something to be vanquished, especially in the Western world. Hmm. I spoke to Dr. Larry Rosen for one of the interviews who does a lot of work on attention. And he said, I would say that our imagination is on the decline exactly in the opposite trend of our time spent on smartphones. Um, I wonder what for you, how you see that link between attention and imagination in terms of if culturally our, our, our attention, our ability to focus starts to decline, become more fractured. You've, you said a little bit before, but I wondered if you had any other thoughts about that link between distraction and attention uh, and imagination? Mm. Um, well, I'd say that the link is, again, um, with the idea of stunted thinking, um, that when we're hopping from one task to another, and the research shows that people switch tasks on average every three minutes throughout the day, um, then, you know, what we're only able to focus on is, um, you know, the very first layer, the surface of whatever it is we're meeting. Um, and I think to, you know, um, conscious awareness is now when um, there's a lot of different, uh, you know, ways to tackle the, the great problem of consciousness. But if we're thinking about it in terms of awareness, um, the latest findings um, from um, Stan Dehane in Paris and others um, shows that 
to be aware, when you're suddenly aware consciously of something, when it is in your focus, that's the only state of mind that allows you to reason, to build thought. You know, everything that's um, peripheral or, um, you know, sort of semi, that we're semi-aware of um, is something that we are only approximately, roughly uh, understanding. Um, so again, there's there again is that idea of building thinking. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we often venerate um, in our society the idea of the epiphany, the idea of the lightning strike of the muse. Um, <clears throat> and um, I think it's really important to understand that after uh, after perhaps the epiphany, you know, one, one of which I had about my distracted book, but after that comes the really hard work of, uh, again, holding up that possibility to the light, um, testing it, um, understanding where it fits with other um, research and ideas in there, uh, in, in your domain. Um, and I think that this kind of... Um, you know, this kind of activity is undermined by just basically doing something for a really short time each time. Jump, jumping, hopping, interrupting, um, you know, undermining the uh, ability to, uh, to, to have something grow organically is, is, um, is very much undermined in this current culture. I want, you mentioned about you mentioned ADHD, and I, it reminded me I did an interview with Lisa Van Susteren that I put up last week, where she talks about something called uh, pre-traumatic in terms of climate change. She talks about pre-traumatic stress disorder, that you know the the psychological impacts of living with the knowledge of climate change and what's happening. And during the interview, she said, "Well, it's not really it's not it's only a disorder in as much as." Uh, seeing a family having a picnic on a train track with a train thundering towards them and being concerned about it could be classed as being a disorder. It's really a, a kind of a condition, a natural, an entirely human response. And I wonder to what extent, you know, what what's the current science around ADHD? Is it is it really? Uh, I have a son who has petit mal epilepsy, and and it feels to me with him it, that it's like a kind of a, it's like a fuse. In a world where there's too much stimulation, it's a, it's like a trip switch, uh, uh, and I wondered, you know, at a time when we are when our children's attentions are just bombarded from dawn till dusk, is it really any wonder that we have things like ADHD? Well, I have to say I'm not a scientific expert on ADHD, and because I was very interested in the broader implications. Um, I specifically haven't focused my research on the science of ADHD, okay. um, so I, um, I I wouldn't be the right person to, to okay. answer that. Okay, no, never mind. Um, so um, I'm, 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 I, want, I wondered, having done all this research and having been living with this stuff for several years longer than most people, and uh, you know, being really aware of the impacts of the technologies that that you write about, how that has, uh, what changes it's led to in your own life in relationship to those uh, to those technologies. Oh, well, that's um, that's a very good question. Um, I guess it made me, over the years, 
Well, first of all, in order to get the work done that I do, um, I've never really been able, even if I were interested, to be a kind of Twitter fiend or uh, to, you know, be online in the ways that I think many people are. Um, I must say that just last fall, um, one of my daughters who's in college, um, so she's about 20, 21, 22, um, at, the, at the time she was 21, um, she was very ill. Um, you know, she had some head injuries. It led to some complications. She was really seriously ill. It was the first time. So I was with her, but then I had to set up systems and then come back to New York. She was, you know, in um, far away across the country. I started checking my phone a lot, uh, and it it it's I'm still battling that. The the urge to check that phone when maybe there's nothing there to have checked um, is so strong. I find it really difficult every time I take a, a small break when I'm in a library or at home. Um, I just have the urge to pull it out of my pocket. So I can see what, you know, the, the, the physiological science now of that kind of addiction, um, especially when something is so portable, when you don't have to walk across the room, when you don't have to um, carry your desktop. But I, you know, so I guess I've done more to fight it, knowing, knowing how, how precious that ninth layer of focus is. Uh, how difficult it is to get to those deeper connections that I'm talking about. I go to a library often uh, and uh, specifically don't have my computer linked to the Internet there. They, for years, didn't even have Internet in the stacks where I go. I'm in the deepest, darkest corner. Um, and it's just not where I do the kind of research which involves lots and lots of looking online and, and trundling around different points and calling people. I have different physical locations for where I do different work and I don't, I try not to muddle them. Mm. And took the, I took the, the clock off my laptop so I don't have that clock subconsciously in my face. Um, I try to power down the cell phone and turn it off in order to get out. I, I have, um, you know, the if people, I've, I've written about companies that urge their people who have to drive a lot, salespeople or whatever, to put the cell phone in the trunk so they won't, um, you know, text. Um, I don't really do that. But, but nevertheless, I, I'm just, it, it's made me really, really, really aware of how easy it is to say that's not me when really it is. Mm -hmm. How easy it is to say I can make that call on the road when actually um, the odds are so in your not in your favor that you're going to be able to deal with um, that little bit of a um, challenge, uh, you know, that swerving driver or that child running into the street or something like that. You're you're just stacking the odds against yourself, um, I know. And it's also had some, I feel as though, in a way, I know how precious attention to one another is. Um, so I often talk with my husband about my book, and sometimes I go off into the countryside to do writing, and that's the most difficult, precarious, deep kind of thinking that I'm doing, and then I'll try to um, you know, trade notes or get his opinion on some ideas that I'm working with, and then he'll be multitasking around the kitchen and banging things and cooking and 
he's got a million things to do, and I'm, um, I feel as though I'm not, I don't have his attention. He feels as though it's something that's so easy to do that he can multitask his way through this, and I feel as though wow, it's so precious, these moments when we're talking about something that matters, um, why bang around and do something that might, you know, take away. So it's a, it's a really difficult, it's a really difficult call in our lives. And I see so often, um, people who, I mean, this is not scientific. I guess there are a lot of, there's a lot of research about loneliness and listening and et cetera, et cetera. But just in my life, um, I, I meet people so often who are not listened to, who I can barely get a word in edgewise because they want so badly to talk. We're with one another and yet we're squandering those opportunities. I, I, I once, um, researched, uh, an anthropologist, um, the, a MacArthur fellow recipient of one of the genius grants at UCLA. She did one of the most in-depth studies of American family life. Um, you know, hundreds of researchers, 12 families, they came up with these incredible findings about uh, how families lived and how busy they were. And, and she, one of her uh, comments, which I will never forget, is will we look back and say we could, we could have been having a conversation? Um, and uh, that really stuck with me. We, really, we could have been having a conversation rather than sitting side by side on these machines. So, so, uh, so, if you're somebody who, who really, really gets this stuff, and even you struggle with the kind of the, 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 uh, the addictive, impossible to put down nature of those kind of dopamine firing technologies, what hope do the rest of us have? <laughs> yeah. know, what, what, what? I've, sort of collectively, do we have any? any chance that we can rein this stuff in you know i mean our, our attention and our our uh, where we choose to rest our eyes is now some of the most valuable real estate in the world and everybody wants it uh and even reading the stuff that larry rosen and people talk about you know they say we are evolutionarily in, incapable of resisting this stuff well, I think that is the mantra at the moment. Um, you know, we're having a, a lot of conversations as, you know, as we should about the brain hacking that the systems um, do to us. There's a lot of anger at the big four or five tech companies, um, you know, as if the toddler is very unhappy that the, you know, the candy has given, that the, that the parent has given, you know, now leads to a cavity. I think that there's, you know, a lot of backlash, and it's really important to ask all these questions. But I, I don't think at all that we should feel hopeless. I don't think at all that that we are actually creatures that are, um, you know, just helpless in the face of this. Just we had the mantra for the last ten or twenty years that. There's nothing that can be done to those who oppose this in the beginning, that it's coming. I actually had a woman, in the, an Apple an Apple employee, an Apple retail representative, whatever, when I was looking, I asked for a phone that didn't have the Internet, and I got a five-minute lecture on how I should get through the pro, get with the program, and, and I was really, you know, you know, behind the times, and this was a few years ago, and I was so happy when my daughter 
um, you know, turned to me as we left the store and said, Mom, I couldn't believe that because at least her age group actually realized how Orwellian and horrific this, this, uh, this um, you know, comment was. Um, but it, I just don't believe that we were helpless uh, in terms of how this technology could come upon us um, the inventors dominate the conversation in historically, uh, a, you know, since in any technological uh, history. Um, but yet, then we have the opportunity. No more so are we helpless against these machines unless we actually decide to ignore the side of ourselves that thinks, the side of ourselves that can be uncertain, the side of ourselves that is you know, able to consciously call on our capacity because we are, we evolved as much to be quick thinkers, instantaneous, uh, you know, cognitive misers for the sake of our survival um, as we evolved to uh, freeze. You know, the ability to reflect can be traced back to these um, six core cog uh, instincts you know, flight and freeze and, and you know, et cetera. And freezing evolved into our ability to uh, shape our fates by working with the unknown, to consciously think. Um, so I think the, sec one, the second thing I'd say to that is that it all starts very small. <laughs> That's one thing I learned about behavioral change from studying work and family and et cetera. If you, it used to be that uh, parents, you know, that companies were afraid that parents would want flex time every single day and they'd be coming in at all hours and they'd never do anything at home. Well, really, they wanted to get out at 3 p.m. on Friday to go see their kids' baseball game. And that, uh, you know, just as you stand, I think, in the transition movement for these um, bottom-up, very small changes and for seeing where others see calamity, you see opportunity. Um, that's, I think, exactly where we need to shift our thinking about technology. Um, and if if you, for instance, pause, um, you know, just pausing doctors who pause before they um, go see the next patient are shown to have higher di diagnostic accuracy, and just a few minutes. Um, you know, of confusion when students are learning complex lessons is, um, uh, you know, shows to enable them to understand the deeper hidden, um, you know, complexities of the problems that they're learning. And so these are small steps. Uh, we have to say it, see, see it as doable and workable. And I think that um, it involves big evolutionary, I mean, revolutionary changes in terms of changing the language uh, around technology, changing the language around efficiency or success or uncertainty, or need, we need to flip quite a bit of how we have faced our lives and our societies. We need to flip that on its side and understand what we've been missing. That's really crucial, but it does start with small steps. I firmly believe that. Well, this is this was this is my step. That's my phone now. <laughs> oh yeah okay it's a one of it's not a smartphone i'm having to learn to do that ridiculous texting where you press the buttons three times and all of that again <laughs> um so uh, a question that i've asked everybody that you might have seen on the website and some of the articles was 
if if it had been uh, you who had been elected as the president rather than the current incumbent and <laughs> you had run on the platform of make america imaginative again that you had you felt that there was a sort of a slide in in collective imagination and that it needed to be the focus of education public life home life across the board that there needed to be a real scaling up and uh, care given to the country being fostering its imagination as best it could i wonder what might be some of the things you might do in your first hundred days in office sure well i could only in my first 100 days i believe uh plant seeds and these suggestions might seem indirect um, because probably, as you might agree, we can't just institute or, or uh, regulate imagination. Mm. But I'd say there are two aspects of what I think might help um, if I were president. I'd say, um, you know, celebrate the slower thinkers, the stories of, say, science, science and how it evolved, not just the outcome, the, the, the discovery. Um, you know, the, the, there, there's, this, there's a sort of a story, again, that's told about muses and revelations and, in, uh, and, and we know that there's hard work involved, but what is that hard work? What is the artist's process? We see in museums the outcome um, I once helped curate an exhibit, uh, and I, uh, my part was to um, put up a, a, you know, kind of a corner devoted to artistic process, and it was really hard for the artist even to relinquish a half-done object, but that's how we see it's done, and that's how we see that there are steps in a world of instantaneous push-button um, information. Um, I think we need those processes uh, again. And then secondly, in order to turn, uh, you know, imagination is something that's all around us or something that we all can um, cultivate a lot, I'd say one of the most important things to do is change the language, the way we, that, that change the language with which we describe uh, uh, human thinking. Um, you know, we think of memory as uh, file file folders that we whip out and add to and put back when actually it's an incredibly organic schematic living almost organism our memory is slow to build and even the idea of forgetting which is a moment of uncertainty forgetting and then trying to struggle to recall something actually strengthens your memory for, for what you're trying to recall and other memories like it. So, um, you know, in other words, change the language with how we, that, that, that we are dealing with the human as if uh, it were, or we were machines. And that is so toxic mm. to imagining a better future. You know, I would just try to eradicate in my vocabulary and anyone else who dealt with education or culture or in, at what have you, all of these words about I'm programmed to this or, um, you know, et cetera. And I was just reading a study um, by these really creative librarians in the United States who, you know, saw that a lot of student learning is about 
quote, the librarians, the teachers, et cetera, talk about, quote, unquote, finding sources rather than learning from a project. They're actually, by, through their language, um, they're narrowing um, how the kids, um, you know, meet that new learning opportunity. Um, so I think we need to be, um, you know, treating our minds as what they are, <laughs> this organic living, you know, our brain is just as biological and organic as, as a beautiful tree. Uh, and it is not a machine. That analogy has been, uh, has been thrown out basically by scientists years ago, and yet it's left lingering in our culture and I think doing real damage. Mm. Um, so that was my questions. I wondered if just you had any last thoughts about imagination and attention that I haven't asked you the right question to elicit. Well, no, those are really good questions. Um, I, yeah, I, I guess I might just add that to, to add one little extra bit of, uh, il, uh, elaboration on, you know, my point that we're changing what it means to know, um, you know, we're expecting something that's neat and packaged but we're also so often uh, turning to um, you know, a certain place, the online world, for the answers. And so there's a two-way street of influence there. Um, and I think of um, the idea that when you're in this world, it's very much the templates, uh, you're dealing with the templates of others' thinking. Um, you know, templates by template, I mean, you know, extremely narrow, box-like, um, you know, not conducive to gray area thinking, um, you know, tick off the boxes, that, that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, that also, you know, that, that in terms of history, um, you know, from what I've read that, you know, societies built upon, um, you know, capitalistic systems and also, science, um, you know, lend, have, have developed a kind of attitude about um, the fact that unquantifiables in human existence uh, are, are able to be treated with precision. So one historian calls this the illusion of precision. And if you look at that, um, you know, the illusion of precision allows you to mistake the MRI for the patient. You know, it allows you to think that a tweet or a meme is actually capturing the totality of a fuzzy, uh, evolving issue. Um, so we're lured into and, and gamification, uh, you know, which lures us into uh, adapting our habits for uh, rewards offered by machines or al algorithms. Um, you know, all of this is really, again, I think, changing uh, what it means to know, what it means to think about a problem. And that has everything to do with um, imagination, which is such a, a big, beautiful, vague, all over the map kind of idea mm. um, that, you know, it, you can just see in that word alone that imagination doesn't fit into that box-like, contrived, um, extremely structured and strict 
uh, strictured kind of world that we dealt, deal with in, in the virtual. And I'm all for that, but only as one side of ourselves.